quick disclaimer before we go any further. I am not a medical professional. I am not trained in anything at all whatsoever, which is why I'm so depressed. But I do have real world experience. So you should take all of this as anecdotal only. Ready? Let's go. Mantidepressants. A guide for women on understanding and dealing with depressed men. Chapter 1. Understanding the Beast. Four million years ago, the Earth was surprisingly similar to modern-day Stevenage. During the day, young proto-humans, guided by base instincts contained within their dense craniums, roamed the Great Plains. Primitive tools in hand, these men of disparate tribes would trek between their cave dwellings and nearby sources of water. Sometimes they would drink, other times they would forage, and when the need arose, they would hunt. Unknown to their savage minds, basic abilities to be stored inside the hippocampus were forming inside their smooth brains. To survive, a man needed to hone his skills. He who could see his prey the furthest, or throw a rock most accurately, would be the one to score a kill on whatever poor creature's path crossed theirs. Be it a reptile or a rabbit, all were fair game. Life was hard, and even the status of alpha male was no guarantee of safety. The pick of Stevenage's women, hairy as they were, was coveted by many of the men within these tribes as it was the only true way to make sure that theirs was the genome that would succeed to the next generation and perhaps even future dominance, such as the basic programming of the male mind. It is at night where our story of man at his zenith begins. Deep inside a cave, probably now Stevenage Leisure Park, a little after sunset, ten cavemen hunched around a small crackling fire of wood and gently smouldering leaves. Concubines, along with their children, huddled a little deeper into the recess to own smaller fire, keeping the chill of night at bay. One of the men, barely 18 by our standards, had been staring into the fire for a little too long, so mesmerising were these flames. As he stared, his hand reached out for a nearby branch harvested earlier that day. As the branch ignited in the flickering light, our protagonist removed it to enjoy the spectacle as the branch had taken on its own smaller aspect of the fire now travelling down the branch. Still entranced, he screeched as the tiny flames eventually took to his hand, burning him. Suddenly back in the real world, his first instinct was to drop the now blackened stick. The older men didn't react in alarm. The day was done, the mood sombre. A few chuckled at the sight of a young one being stupid, but otherwise all remained calm. Not for our man-child. Once the stick lay warm and smoky, he picked it up, and in a rage at the now quelled flame it once hosted, struck it against the wall. A single line of carbonised wood marked the rock. With another strike came another line. Again and again, his anger vented, it had left several black marks in its wake. Staring at the rock face, stick still in hand, he tentatively scratched the surface again with several small disjointed strokes and topped them with a small circle, leaving a crude drawing of a man. This tiny splinter of mankind had just discovered the secret of communication. And fuck me sideways if that didn't kick things off. The eldest and most respected man had quietly witnessed this. Words or concepts like miracle or magic didn't exist back then, so the only really viable course of action was for him to stand, point and jump up and down till his bollocks ate from all the swinging about they were doing. This act spread like the fire that started it all and the men became excited at this latest invention and the women, fearful of being trapped by hairy grunting rapists, held their young tightly and shuffled out of sight. And why wouldn't they? Men are innovating! Our elder wanted this stick because, well, this object was unique. This inferred value, which would ensure his influence over all others assembled and 
quash any dissidents. His attempt at theft was quickly subdued by our young man who clawed at his opponent's throat until left alone as the grunting warped into excited screeching. Amidst the cacophony, our hero held his new stick of power aloft and pointed at that which he was freshly entitled. Improperly cooked food, Neanderthal women, obedient hairy dudes. Being a man has its perks. Fwet forward in time to days of old when knights of old, Britain was host to five kingdoms and laundry was done mostly by pissing on your own rags. Masculinity was a pretty simple concept. Having said that, the average lifespan would be around 30 to 40 years and that's taking into account the chances of surviving being born, a piffling 70%. So dudes didn't really have all that time to worry about anything between farming, having kids, going to church, planning their own funeral and keeping an eye out for the old crooked-nosed woman, probably called Sarah, who'd try messing with their wheat fields by chanting utter drivel while stirring a cauldron of stinging nettles in their own urine. That's still like Stevenage then. Thinking about it, being a man was pretty great. Sure, the quality of life was crap without TV and decent healthcare, but they'd just be in a big boys club, really. Woman trouble? Tie them to a chair and dunk them in the pond. Kids misbehaving? Well, there's an ass whooping it to sort that out. Crop shortage? Best go burn Sarah at the stake. Without delving into what we'd say would rightly call domestic abuse, they'd be at the top of the local food chain pretty much automatically by virtue of penis ownership. Pretty good, right? Well, unless some king somewhere decide to have a spat with their upstart neighbour, then all the villages would be bereft of dick because all the men wound up finding eternal glory at the end of someone else's sword. Odd place to find it, but that's what happens when you meld church-state and ruling monarchs repeatedly shagging their own sisters. Slam another millennia on the clock to the time of the Industrial Revolution and life was looking up further still. Provided he survived childhood's tribulations of poking around underneath mechanised looms or working in a coal mine, a man could build a railway and be given beer and meat for lunch. Or if they were rich, they could stuff their face to socially lauded obesity and purchase the affection of a bawdy woman for three guineas, which is £245 adjusted for inflation, for those who feel a need to know that. Cheese, bacon, cake, all there for the taking. And if for some reason you, as their dear wife, said anything other than, yes, husband, you'd be whisked off to the doctor for the ministrations your disordered feminine mind desperately required. Long gone the barbarian days of trepanning and praying the demons of sickness away. Now your physician could rid your womanly mental brain wrongs by use of a vibrating motor applied to the intimate area to draw out your female insanity amidst an episode of shuddering and moaning. Huzzah for men! Huzzah indeed! And unbeknownst to those men, huzzah for women, if only because their husbands were silly enough to have paid for it. Today, however, we have a bit more to deal with, all without stringent social guidelines to keep us from ignoring our feelings. The gravity of the situation isn't as bad as men hoping to grow enough food to survive the winter, Tory governments notwithstanding, but as civilization and education have advanced, the average man has more and more brain power to spare. Time has passed and men have grown to accept and process so much more. Women are the equals of any man in any ability you'd care to name and not simply vessels for masculine vanity, unless they live in Hadleywood and drive a black land over discovery. Men have come to realise that they cannot hand off their failures or that which is beyond their control as a result of not praying hard enough or having a witch in their midst. The introspection granted by an evolving society means that men have had to take more responsibility for their actions. No longer does man rule through fear, he rules through thought self-examination equally alongside women. This self-examination is but one of the many factors that cause men to struggle with depression. Recall, if you will, the tale of Nora Vincent, who went undercover as a man in her 2006 publication Self-Made Man by Atlantic Books. For 18 months she disguised herself as a man and successfully infiltrated the open cabal of the male world. 
As if she were in Rome, she joined a bowling club, visited strip bars, and even dated women who were oblivious as to her true identity. Pioneers such as Nora should be richly lauded for this, and her subsequent bout of depression and stay in a psychiatric institution should serve as a warning for all of us, men and women alike, that being a man today is not as easy and calm as it seems on the surface. Not only has social progress opened men up to these pressures, but their upbringing may have had more of an impact than first considered. For example, a man born in the early 1920s was, like his father before him, trained to be a killer, not something many people take time to consider. National service was the inevitable benchmark for how a man should live his life, neat, tidy, compartmentalised. All that made him unique was squared away in a mental trunk somewhere in his late teens as he was involuntarily trained how to lead a disciplined existence, and that if he valued his own life, the man at the other end of his Lee Enfield number 4 had to forfeit theirs. Just another glorious day serving king and country. God bless the empire and, and all that. World Wars 1 and 2 forced men everywhere to suffer the consequences of their own ideas of masculinity. They started as brash boys bayoneting sacks of sand and returned changed men. Some would be withdrawn, some would suffer PTSD and would have to turn the lights on and off 20 times before leaving a room, lest an unnerving compulsion refrain from silence in the back of his mind. Others would have severe episodes of anger ignited at the tiniest of sights, most only perceived and not real. Some of this was vented through abuse of their peers or loved ones. Could people understand? Would a man shaped as such confide in his wife, a mere woman? Ha! That's a joke, by the way. What it's like to see what your friends are made of thanks to an artillery strike? Of course not. He was told by his father and all fathers before him that men just got on with it. And besides, why would he burden anyone else with his trauma? It's undignified. It's not manly. It's just not the done thing. And the fires of war had forged these men who were, and some may still be, the fathers of the generation now entering retirement. Speaking of the generation entering retirement, male boomers were shaped by the generation of men to be impacted by war, but due to the further innovations of men armed with clipboards, brill cream and a doctorate in nuclear physics, not to mention the ultimate sacrifice paid for by millions of other men, the deterrent of having the largest army and the need for national service has been made redundant and boomers did not have to experience war or the training for it themselves. To be moulded by their traumatised fathers in their own image, but not solidified by the military or battle, is a curious thing to behold. All of the upbringing, yet none of the experience, allows boomers to espouse the beliefs they learned without having to be restrained by them, say, after the Battle of Tobruk. Essentially, all mouth and no trousers. This is not to say that male boomers are hypocrites. Certainly not. They were made by post-war men to live in a post-war world, which are, when you think about it, two diametrically opposed ideas. There's no mental health services to even dare speak of, but bricks and mortar are plenty. And so the post-war generation of men came home and did their duty to king and country by fucking like rabbits, and 16 years later schools churned out boys trained in a trade, and each summer those leaving school would enter the world as scores of plumbers, builders and electricians. No military, no war. Their fathers could be stern, harsh, sometimes angry to the point of cruelty, but these new men had a youth that wasn't spent in a rat-infested trench or being yelled at by a corporal who'd threatened to shoot them if they didn't shoot someone else. It was the 1970s. There were flares to be worn, vinyl to be bought, and far too much of the colour brown, if you ask me. And their children, millennials, are those who are now on antidepressants. Hi. The role of a man hasn't changed much, but what shapes them certainly has. 
At school, and perhaps even to this day, millennials were under enormous pressure to perform like a prized Olympian, as if it was drilled into them that their GCSEs were the most important exam they'd ever take, that what you did at 16 would shape the remaining 60 to 70 years remaining on this earth. There was no redemption possible through further education. Girls had the benefit of a little extra maturity and least to share their fears with one another, even quietly at home, permission to relieve the pressure through keeping a diary or just simply crying to themselves. Us boys... Anything other than making fun of each other and acting like dicks led to excommunication. Of those that took A-levels, some were so crushed by the expectation that attempts were made at suicide. Further on, and society just ratches up the pressure. Are you ever going to get a decent job, a girlfriend, a car, a rented flat? Is that enough? Can you turn a job into a career? A girlfriend to a wife? Can you keep a career? Can you keep a wife? Transition from renting to a mortgage? Can you make your parents proud? These were questions previous generations wouldn't need to consider. A job interview consisted of, Good news, Emma. Yes. Start Monday. And that was an interview my dad had once. A house could be purchased by a single man with only a moderate revenue stream. Parents had unspoken pride, provided you were employed and not in prison. The confidence to do well with women was easy when you could look back at your life, see jobs available within your trade, affordable housing, and parents that nodded a silent approval at you. Now, these worries are so much more. Applying for a job means competing with 200 other applicants, three interviews, two exams, and still being told that you're just not good enough. And no, I'm not exaggerating. Thank read.co.uk for that. Buying a house is a pipe dream only realised by people around the London area as they're halfway through their 30s. Women have far more choice than men through dating apps. If you're passive with women, you'll likely die alone. Anything more and you risk being the subject of a humiliating post on Reddit. Not because women are cruel, but because inexperience can make fools of anyone. Even Gillette released a public service announcement in 2019 painting half the sex as borderline bullies and rapists. Modern dating also has another method of rejection in store. Ghosting. The ultimate form of rejection where honest men looking for love are simply ignored and robbed of the opportunity of figuring out what went wrong. And above all else, it's just plain rude to let a man's hopes wither and rot because you can't be asked to tell him why things aren't working out. Even rude than being told to fuck off. Because at least being told to fuck off gives a man some sort of closure or point of termination. And all this in the solitude enforced upon us by the adages that boys don't cry and men don't talk about their feelings. I mean, it's sometimes possible, but the courage gathered to do so is usually brushed off as an uncomfortable conversation another man doesn't want due to pride or fear of vulnerability. Dad says, get on with it. Mum says, the only direction's forward. You will get married. You will have kids. You will be another cog in the machinery in Finalis. How? I don't know. You figure it out. We're a generation where there's no shadow of war looming over us so the military can whip us into a shape that tightly contains trauma and keeps it from others. We're a generation where confidence isn't found by easy employment and cheap housing. We're a generation spared the stick, but with no carrot in sight. And so now we ask, what can we do about this? Men with depression are a pretty curious bunch. On the surface, we, yes we, may seem broadly similar to others, but if we delve deeper we can see the path to salvation consists of only a few short steps. Chapter 2. Diagnosis. Chances are you're not a trained medical professional, neither am I, so diagnosis is something best left to those that are. Nonetheless, if you're listening to this then you may suspect something is up. Spotting depression in men is sometimes difficult, as a man who has reason to hide his depression, such as pride, can use a busy lifestyle to mask his true feelings behind explanations of tiredness or stress at work. However, there are telltale signs that manifest and can be detected. According to the NHS website, symptoms that you can pick up on include irritability and intolerance of others, lack of motivation or interest, 
difficulty in making decisions, lack of enjoyment of life, avoidance of social situations, moving or speaking more slowly than usual, a change in appetite or weight, constipation, unexpected aches and pains, lack of energy, low sex drive, disturbed sleep, inadvertently having difficulties in home, work or family life. If you notice these symptoms, a conversation about them is the first step in helping a loved one. There's every possibility that the thoughts inside a man's head resemble a battlefield, so taking aside or simply complaining about the effects without getting into cause isn't going to help. Similarly, asking what's up is a question that's likely to be met with deflection, so it may be helpful to explain that help is something offered by others and there's no shame in accepting it. Quite the contrary, in fact, there's great pride to be had by those that help others, and being the source of that pride by receiving aid is, at the very least, going to make the person in need the reason another can feel a bit better about themselves. If you're lucky, your man will open up. If not, then just being assured that you're there to help can be enough to get the ball rolling. Remember that men are problem solvers by nature, but getting them to recognise that a problem exists doesn't immediately engage the response to solve it. Altruism is an excellent method of getting men to do something. They won't see a professional for themselves, but they'll likely do it for you. Chapter 3. Seeing a GP. Getting men to see a doctor can sometimes be a chore, especially in the UK where one of the prevailing fields of thought is that the NHS is always in some sort of trouble, and that its limited resources and overworked staff are best reserved for people in greater need than one man feeling a bit down in the dumps, and honestly nothing could be further from the truth. Speaking from experience, talking to GPs, they generally tend to see such attitudes as self-defeating and their motivation for becoming medical professionals and subjecting themselves to the gruelling curriculum in university, not to mention junior doctor contracts, thank you Theresa May, wasn't motivated by money, fame or anything else the NHS can't offer, but a bona fide need to help their fellow human. GPs in the UK don't have to take the Hippocratic Oath, but the spirit of such resides within many, and a good GP is one that will tell a man that their problem is as important as anyone else's. Crap GPs, of which there are a few, will simply tell men to get over it. This advice is to be ignored, and under no circumstances should anyone accept this kind of treatment. Do recall that they are there to listen to a summary of issues and help as needed, which may result in prescribing antidepressants. It's of vital importance that any conversation held with a GP be of the utmost honesty, so a GP can differentiate between depression or any other mental issue, so the right diagnosis is made, and in the event of prescription, the correct medication is requested. One of the most important factors to remind men of is that they are not alone, that approximately 17% of the adult population of the UK currently enjoys a soothing evening cup of tea with a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor chaser. It's a bit of a mouthful to say, but relying on medication for a time is certainly not a bitter pill to swallow. Chapter 4. Counselling Regardless of whether or not a man is prescribed antidepressants, the power of conversation is one that is not to be underestimated by any means. Conversation about feelings does not come easy to many men, and the simplest way for them to avoid feelings of judgement is to talk to a stranger about it. After all, the cause of his depression may be too personal to share with you. Counselors themselves do not become emotionally involved with their clients, which means that not only is there an environment free of prejudice, but the entirety of a counsellor's considerable brain power is focused on the clients, the problems they're experiencing, and most importantly, solutions. Counselling is a remarkably easy and effective process, and NHS counselling is available without a referral from a GP, but as you can imagine, there's quite a queue for their services. Private counsellors can offer their services at a range of price points dependent on your circumstances, but the treatment received is the same nonetheless. The act of counselling is not, as the name may indicate, having someone counsel a client the same way a 
priest might direct someone to a Bible verse or a friend may dispense advice. It is, in my personal experience, all about sitting on a very comfy chair and just venting. It could be 14 minutes of moaning about work with the remaining time spent realising the effect it has and how to mitigate it. It could take the format of a Q&A session with the self or just asking aloud how to solve a problem and being given the time and space to come up with the answer. Either way, the answer is inside a man and counselling will help them find it. Time after a session is an excellent opportunity to pause and reflect. While counselling is confined to four walls and a stranger, the answers gleaned from it should, if appropriate, be considered fully. It may also be helpful for men to take time and make a mental list of what they might want to discuss with the counsellor prior to any given session, as sometimes conversations lead to places that are more frivolous than needed. Chapter 5. The first few days on antidepressants. In the event that medication is to be taken, the basic rules apply with regards to dosage, times, etc. No one needs me to tell them that and to read the guide that comes with their medication, but I will anyway read the guide! The side effects of antidepressants can be tough to deal with and quite numerous, including feeling worse before you get better. This is where experience can come into play and in the interest of helping men everywhere, I'm only too happy to share the small range of oddities that affected me personally. For myself, acute insomnia became apparent on the second night. As a person who had a lot on their mind at the time, I can honestly say that it was hell having to deal with it. Along with the lack of interest in anything at all meant no distractions, just depressive thoughts impinging themselves on my mind while my wife slept next to me. People were hesitant to say anything about sleeping pills, as I'd just started this medication and messing with it would be a bad idea. In total, I think I had about 10 nights subsisting on 3 hours of sleep. The odd YouTube video of rainfall or smooth jazz didn't help, although I don't think jazz has helped anyone ever. But there was one thing that did allow me to rest. The human voice. Towards the end of this ten night madness, I was becoming used to being lulled by the USAF's former soother in chief, Bob Ross. It doesn't matter if you're watching or not, although watching is a bonus. Ross's voice was one of the few things I discovered that could help me sleep. Similarly, an interesting podcast gives the mind something to focus on. For me, it was military aviation, but Simon Whistler has since taken over as the voice I fall asleep to the most, and his remarkably diverse array of YouTube channels cover pretty much any topic you care to consider. It might also be worth looking into premium services, as obnoxious ads will get in the way of a good night's sleep. Or as YouTube's current ad campaign would say, Get YouTube Premium on us and lick your own eyeballs uninterrupted. Another escape was reading. It's another way of keeping external stimuli at bay and has been proven to aid in insomnia treatment. With the added benefit that a good story is an excellent way of keeping entertained. Unless it's written by Drew Wager, then at least you've got something for bonfire night. Chapter 6. Long Term Toying with neurochemistry is a bit like Elon Musk chucking his car into space. On the one hand, space has gained a car and David Bowie repeated ad infinitum on the stereo. On the other, Earth lost a perfectly good Tesla Roadster. Elon giveth and Elon taketh away. The same can be said for the 150 milligrams of sertraline I quaff every night as I am now in a much better place mentally, but now to deal with sexual dysfunction. As I've just entered my 40s as a long-term antidepressant user, I'm under no illusion that my corpse will be found with its dick in its hand, as masturbation has now become an Olympic event, and one that I am ill-prepared for. For the insanely curious, the side effect is one of delayed climax. It's not a case of simply bashing the bishop for five minutes and a couple of hours later I can spontaneously inseminate the chair I'm sitting in. It's extreme difficulty getting over the hill, as it were. As sex in a relationship is usually a two-person proposition, a partner should, well... Enjoy it. 
My wife doesn't want me typing away our bedroom escapade, so as the person with the problem, it's up to me to inform you how this can be dealt with. The first method is to put a positive spin on the situation. For myself, I can remain tumescent for extended periods without orgasm. This is not a boast, as I'd much rather enjoy the benefits of premature ejaculation, even if my furniture wouldn't. So a partner dealing with this side effect in their men should take the opportunity to pleasure themselves fully. Not only is the usual race for orgasm now a tortoise and hare deal, but men take great pride in seeing their partners satisfied sexually. Sex cannot go on forever, sadly. So when it's time for someone to spill their gentlemanly cream, there are several things to remember. Whereas previously the masculine bellow of orgasmic triumph may have been assured, this guarantee is no longer bonded. There comes a point where too much stimulation just makes things go numb, in which case it's pretty much game over. Before getting to this point, I found it important to talk about what I enjoyed in bed and then ratchet it up to 11. If, for instance, I could previously climax at the truly scandalous sight of a woman's ankle peeking out from underneath a frilly Victorian dress, then in order to bid farewell to chastity this time around, both ankles would be required. Maybe a little bit of shin. You see where I'm going? This doesn't mean you should engage in anything you're not comfortable with. Just take the existing stuff and kick it up a notch. Not crossing the finishing line is nothing to worry about as orgasm is controlled by the brain, the autonomic nervous system if I recall correctly, which has had its natural balance altered. It's a neurological issue that has nothing to do with how sexy you are or your own performance. Men may feel frustrated when this comes to pass, in which case it's a good idea to mention that it's not always about getting the gold medal. As long as fun was had, it was certainly worth partaking in. I cannot say further as to side effects as I believe I have escaped rather lightly. When given the choice of feeling like crap and crying uncontrollably on the sofa and being fine dandy but having to save a few Kleenex, I feel that I'm getting pretty much a bargain. Similarly, I cannot speak as the coming off of long-term medication, but I do feel that in the interim, Nora Vincent is the one with the best advice. She says, Men are suffering. They have different problems than women have, but they don't have it better. They need our sympathy. They need our love. And they need each other more than anything else. They need to be together. I wish you both well in your journey. The horizon is much brighter than you think.